I am Reverend Dr. Shelley Best, and I am the president and CEO of the Conference of Churches and the pastor of Redeemer's Amyzine Church in Plainville, Connecticut, and I am 57 years old. Welcome back to another episode of 25 for 25. I'm your host and resident 25-year-old, Panina Beattie. It's been a crazy 25, 2020, um, not gonna lie, it's been rough. Um, but I'm really excited to share with you the interview I conducted with the Reverend Dr. Shelley D. Best. I think it's gonna be really inspiring in a lot of different ways. Shelley Best is someone who is always ready to lend a helping hand and help any young person who wants to become what she calls a soulpreneur, which is something that she identifies as too. She has a master's in religious leadership from the Hartford Seminary, as well as a doctorate in ministry from the Hartford Seminary and an MDiv from Yale University. She's also a yoga teacher and a visual artist. We recorded our interview during the before times in person at the 224, which is a communal eco-space in Hartford that she founded as part of the Conference of Churches. When she was 25, Best was a young professional and an active church member coming back into her faith after the struggles she faced growing up. One valuable takeaway from this interview is that Best found her lifeline through a community that she showed up for. In that community, she was able to find healing and make connections which inspired her to pursue her vision. I think that's really important for us right now to find a community. It doesn't have to be religious. Just find a group of people that, that see the world like you do. Find healing and make those connections so that you can pursue your vision. Quick content warning, we talk about racism, abuse, and PTSD in this episode. Here's the Reverend Dr. Shelley Best on 25. Where and when were you when you were 25? I had to look up the date, so that's 1987. When I was 25, I was finishing work with Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance in Hartford, Connecticut, and I was preparing to take a position as a political appointee for the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. So it was a transitional time period for me. Mm-hmm. And um, this was obviously before you went to the Hartford Seminary? Absolutely. So um, during that time period, I was a member of First Baptist Church in Hartford, which now is the First Cathedral, and young professional coming into my faith and really trying to find my way. So I had just sort of landed as a professional and making some decent money at the time and networking and that's where this other position came about. So I was new to my faith, and then I'm moving into a high-powered professional position and really trying to find my way as a person, you know, a 25-year-old at the time in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Did you like your job? The job that I had at the time working for the Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance, it was a great opportunity for me because... When I graduated, I went to Central Connecticut State University undergrad. And when I went to Central, they didn't really teach us how to get jobs. Like you'd get a degree, but as a communications major, which is what I was at the time, it wasn't really clear to me what kind of job a communications major could get. Like you never never would see in the newspaper, which is how we got jobs then, you'd never see a position for a communications major. And so when I graduated, I was kind of stuck, didn't quite know how to become a professional. So I was working for Sage Allen when I first graduated from college as a cosmetics person. And I just kind of stayed there for the first year and didn't really know how to move along. And then I got a so-called professional position, but it was a sales position working for a cosmetics company called Christopher John Cosmetics. And so what I had to do for that job was cold call beauty salons all day long and try to get them to buy this no name brand generic, you know, cosmetic. Mm-hmm. 
So I really relied on my job at Sage Allen. So fortunately, my stepmother saw me floundering and said, you have a degree, you probably shouldn't stay at Sage Allen selling cosmetics. Why don't I help you? And so she reached out to some of her friends because she was an officer at Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance. So she reached out to one of her friends in personnel and had her interview me and they gave me an entry level position in the insurance company. So did I like the job? I liked dressing for work and kind of looking nice. I like that. Mm -hmm. The person that I worked for as my first supervisor was a soul crushing woman (laughs) who was, she was very um, detail oriented. So the position was a communications job where I was writing the newsletter and whatnot. Nothing was ever good enough for her, and she was always editing, 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 editing me. And I remember she liked to use a red pencil, so like I would write. And when you write, it, a, a sentence could be said so many different ways, so no matter what I said, she was always having me do rewrites. And it seemed like she would have me spend the whole day on a paragraph. So I liked being a professional, but she was not a very empowering supervisor. Mm -hmm. She made me feel less than all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I had a little spunk and spark and I was trying, but she wasn't a very affirming person. Mm -hmm. And so I had hopes that I might be able to climb the ladder and I was networking and talking to people, but she seemed to be the kind of person that didn't want to see me do well. And fortunately, a person that I met in the community that was a very um, well-connected woman, she saw the spark in me and she had some belief that I had potential. So she's the one that really helped me get out of Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance (laughs) and get the position working for the state of Connecticut. Hmm. And how did you feel about turning 25? I'm not sure that I remember turning 25. (laughs) Uh, For me, my 20s were a very hard time period because my father had been killed in a car accident when I was 18 and he was my primary parent because my mother had mental health issues. So he died when I was 18. Somehow, by the grace of God, somehow I made it through Central and graduated which I guess I was probably about 22 then, but still grieving. And so I was really struggling to survive. At the time I had, like a lot of people, I lived in an apartment with a bunch of roommates. Like there were like five of us in a two bedroom apartment. (laughs) And it was an apartment in New Britain that was sort of mouse infested because they advertised it as a sunny apartment. Yeah, there was sunshine, but they didn't mention the mice. (laughs) And so we were just so broke. I was so broke. I was so tired, worn out, kind of confused. I know 25 happened, but I don't quite remember turning that. And I was just trying to find my way. Sure. And you were kind of first exploring your faith around that age? Right, because I, having had the losses in my life, Mm. um, the death, I had to find a way to survive. So faith was me like grabbing a hold of a life raft. And I was really afraid I was going to like go under. Um, I was depressed because I was still grieving. Um, I had been in a less than desirable relationship with a man I should have known was not a good pick for me. Uh, When you meet someone and they have bad teeth and you're only 25, that's a sign that he's probably not a good man. Now, (laughs) if if his front teeth are bad, chances, and he's only like 25, something's kind of wrong there. So he had bad front teeth and he was like really, but he was fine otherwise. But he was really paranoid about his life. And he was a black man who felt that the system was against him. And so everybody's always out to get him and the system's against him. And so he really had a way of manipulating me and rallying me to his side of survival. Now, I'm barely surviving myself, but he had me convinced that I needed to pour 
my energy into helping to save him. And um, when I was 25, I had just gotten out of that relationship. Um, he was such a good manipulator because my father had died. I was getting social security checks and I also was in the military police and the Army National Guard. So I was getting money from Army National Guard and working my little retail. So I had several hustles going. And so I had finally found a way to get out of the apartment with the five roommates and get my own little ugly apartment in New Britain. New Britain. <laughs> and somehow he found a way to move in with me. And it wasn't like it was a decision that it wasn't like we both sat down and said, oh, we love each other, let's live together. It was like he did it really slick. First, he left the toothbrush, then one change of clothes, <laughs> then another pair of shoes, and like he would come over like on a Friday and stay to Saturday, and then next thing I know he's staying Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then, then he's there on Monday, and then the weekends got longer and longer, and. You know, the systems against him, his aunt didn't understand him. So somehow he moved into my apartment, which I didn't really want him there. But, you know, I, quote, loved him, I thought. But I didn't quite know how to tell him, I don't want you to live here. And I don't want to support you. Like, he couldn't keep a job. He, he didn't have that much money of his own. He had moved in with me. And he would act like I was lucky he chose me. But this is when I was 25. I didn't have a lot of, you know, moxie to say what I was really thinking. And he did a mind trip on me like, you know, you're so fortunate to have me, me, the man with, you know, a bad front tooth. And, <laughs> you know, nobody else would have you but me. And, as a 25 year old who went to Central, you know, drinking was sort of a regular thing. Drinking and getting high every smoking herb and everybody's like drinking. So the Central crowd, you start drinking Thursday, you drink Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Maybe you sober up on Monday. And then you start drinking again Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that was sort of the vibe, everybody getting high or drinking. Me with my hustle jobs. He drank all the time too. So I didn't quite realize he was an alcoholic. I didn't fully, but he was drunk He most of the time. He would drink like a six pack, you know. And he happened to be in the military, police, army, national guard too. And over time he became more and more abusive towards me, um, threatening towards me, manipulating. And then, you know, one day I came home from national guard drill weekend, he had left early, and there was another woman getting out of my bed and so my best friend Nancy had come home with me that from that drill and I was upset this is terrible you know it it added up he's cheating on me and so I was being very aggressive at the time I was in martial arts also and so I was gonna smash him with one of my karate trophies and then he pulled a gun on me and was going to shoot me and my friend Nancy's like Shelly stop stop so she like triggered me to stop and then I realized this man just tried to shoot me too. So I had just broken up with him as I'm coming into 25. And in order to get rid of him, I had to move out of my apartment and move back home with my grandmother for a period of time mm -hmm. at 25 because I got into something that was over my head. I was depressed. I thought he was gonna make me happy. And in order to get rid of him, I had to give up my apartment because it wasn't like TV, I want you to move out. He, you know, this guy was not gonna just move out of the apartment because he had been successfully living off me. Right. So that was sort of the complexity of being 25, over my head, doing things my own way, not listening to older people who could have told me what it was. <laughs> I just figured, you know, I remember that being in that age range, how could I not know everything? Like, you know, at 18, I figured I knew everything. What more is there to know? <laughs> and I didn't know everything, especially I wasn't prepared for somebody slick like him. Yeah. What was your lifeline? My lifeline? Yeah. What like, kept you out of the water? 
I tell you, it's really just the grace of God, the divine looking out for me because I didn't really have that much I knew to hold on to myself. Um, so I was just really treading water, you know, trying to survive. And getting through the 20s, it just wasn't an easy period for me as a whole. So I was already kind of down coming out of that relationship with that guy, still trying to be professional and just treading water. We had, you know, some mentors that started to look out for me, but I had a lot of tragedies in my 20s. So it's not like that time period became easy. I didn't get respite till I got into my 30s. Where were you, would you say, um, in the grieving process around that age? Well, my father had died when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And I can say the first three years, I was like living in a cloudy world, colors not fully vibrant, my emotions completely skewed and unpredictable. So that's 18, 19, 20, about 21. And you know, in the 20s, I had picked some less than desirable boyfriends too, which consumed a lot of my energy. And so I'm grieving, but I was trying to look for happy at the same time, but I wasn't picking good partners to actually make me happy. So. Grief was just there, but I was grieving childhood trauma too. Like my childhood was hard. So I had a lot of pain. I had a lot of depression, um, pretty low self-esteem from childhood trauma because of my mother's mental health issues and what had gone on then. So by the time I got to 25, okay, I guess I'm an adult. I have no money. <laughs> I'm really broke. I'm just trying to make it. You know, I probably wasn't getting high as much then. Oh, actually, um, when I think about 25 now, um, when I was 21, 22, to add another layer, um, two weeks after I graduated from college, my older brother, who was supposed to be like my guardian once my father died, he had a severe stroke from cocaine, freebase and cocaine. So I became his caregiver for a couple years too. So that was 21, 22, 23. Mm -hmm. So I had, like I said, just washed up on the shore kind of 23, 24, 25, like, okay, maybe I'm making it. So my grief too was like dealing with my father, dealing with having taken care of my brother and my brother like putting me out of his house because he didn't want me in his house because he wanted his girlfriend to move back in. So me being homeless, that's how I ended up in the mouse infested apartment, working my little retail job, trying to make it, mm -hmm. and then not quite knowing how to climb the ladder, mm -hmm. um, not having parents that were available to me that could kind of steer me. Not that I would have let them, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it caused me to be in a position where I'm, I'm making kind of bad choices. Mm -hmm. So I would find people for seasons that might help me for a little while. There'd be patchwork of people. But a lot of the adults I was with, they really weren't that much better off than me. I mean, older adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A lot of the older adults around me, kind of alcoholics and addicts too. Seems like you've experienced, a, I mean, a lot more than the average 25-year-old by then. Did you feel like there was like a gap between your, you and your peers at that time? I really wasn't aware that there was a gap. Because mm -hmm. um, that was your normal? That was my normal. Right. So, and actually, you know, all of childhood, I was dealing with a lot more than my peers. Right. But when that's the only world you know, you know, I might, I've noticed that other people were doing different things. Mm -hmm. Like I noticed that, you know, some of my friends at Central got to go on spring break. They got to go to what? Fort Lauderdale was like the thing to do, but I had no money, so I couldn't do that. So I just, I just kind of looked at my lot in life. Like I just don't have money. Mm -hmm. I don't have access to these things. I'm just going to keep chugging along. So I don't think I had an awareness. Mm -hmm. Or I might have seen that they had different lives, but I 
didn't have within me an understanding that my life could have been different. I didn't really know I could make my life different. And I didn't really know that there was an option. I just kind of felt this was what I'd been dealt and I've got to find a way to survive. Was there a point where you kind of did realize that gap? Older than 21? No. <laughs> to tell you the truth, because I just saw it as my life. I didn't compare myself to other people. This is just my life. It was never frustrating for you? Frustration was survival. Right. So surviving could be frustrating, mm -hmm. but not looking at somebody else's life thinking, I should have that life. You know, I think it's also the way I was raised. Mm -hmm. So I was born in Norfolk, Connecticut in 1962. Norfolk being the northwest corner of Connecticut, the icebox of Connecticut, because my father decided as a civil rights activist that we would integrate the town. I was going to say, that's a... We were the only <laughs> black family. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm the only black person in the school and the town. And of course, you know, with racism, I was called names all the time. And I was a chubby child and I wore glasses. And so clearly I was not like my peers. Mm -hmm. Clearly I'm black and they're white. Clearly, they get different opportunities than I do. Clearly, I'm a little black girl in a little white girl's world. I don't look like the other little white girls, so I'm not invited to the parties. I'm not getting the boyfriends. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't look like Barbie. So I always knew I was different, and I got a different lot because I was then a little colored girl. So for me to think I'm going to have exactly what everybody else has, never even... I'm black. I knew I wasn't going to have what the other little white girls had. I knew I wasn't going to have that. So I don't think by the time I got to 25, I thought my life was supposed to be like somebody else's. I just knew I had to find a way to keep treading water and survive. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think I could really compare myself to other people. So you're an artist as well as a, a preacher. Uh, well, I guess I can ask you, dealer or dealer's choice, would you rather we talk about your art first or your faith first? Oh, let's talk about the art. Let's okay. dive in. Great. So you're an art, a visual artist as well mm -hmm. as a doctor of divinity, CEO, etc. Uh, yoga teacher. Yoga teacher. Yeah. Just fill, fill in superlative. <laughs> um, tell me about your art and your artistic style. Well, I do abstract, so the artwork that you see in this space are all my paintings. Mm -hmm. And so um, for the last few years, I've been doing a lot of abstracts that are geometric, so I focus on squares a lot now um, because I find the artwork I do, which is similar to Mondrian, is an artist, a, a Dutch artist, Piet Mondrian. Mm -hmm. um, my work is similar to that, so it's the squares, bright colors, and I use the artwork as a tool for meditative practice for me. So I guess my art weaves back into my faith. And so when I paint, I pray. And so for me, I do a lot of work to try to change the world. And so when I paint, it's a way for me to sort of be healed from stuff of the world and to take time off from the things of the world. And so painting is that way of expression. Currently, my body of work has been called What is Black? And so I've been doing work that shows the flesh tones of human beings and realizing that every single color a human being could be could be a so-called black person. And the reality is that to be black, you have a different life based on your skin color. Mm -hmm. So my um, artwork is really a tool for spiritual practice. And this last series has been exploring the skin tones on what is black. And just to kind of put something out there to make people look at it and think about, hmm, so what is black if every color of the rainbow could be a black person? Mm -hmm. But then once you say you're black, your life changes because privilege changes. Mm -hmm. So even though your skin may be white in color, but if you're black, your life is different because you're black. Mm -hmm. So that's what my, my art is about. It's yeah. really 
you know, making various statements. A lot of my um, paintings are like mazes or labyrinths, so sort of exploring how you get to center. Mm. So I guess, once again, my art ties to faith. And then you see the floating souls here, and I've been doing those. That one I did um, probably when I was about 29, maybe, a little bit older. And then this one over here I did more recently, so mm. probably at 55. And so there's been some evolution, but still the floating souls are a part of my practice as well. And I just like the freedom of the shapes flying. Yeah. I like that the more recent one has wings. We did a series here called um, um, Angels in the House. So everyone, it was a call to artists to do paintings showing angels. So that's mm -hmm. why they, that's the only painting I've done with them having wings. Ordinarily, they don't have wings. Oh, it was a special edition. Special edition with yeah. the wings. Well, and what I like about your geometric ones too, some of them are hanging up in your office here, is that you're saying that, that a lot of them are kind of trying to find center, but there isn't really like a clear center in right. any of them. Right, right. Yeah. And that's life. We don't really clearly ever find center. We just try to get there. <laughs> so yeah, my art ends up tying to my faith, but my faith is a part of everything I do. So now it is. And I guess when I was 25, it was leading me to faith that would sustain me, save me, and keep me from losing my mind. Yeah. So tell me about that journey. What was your first experience, I guess, as a young adult? Uh, were you coming back to faith? Were you raised in a faith? I was raised as a Roman Catholic in Norfolk, Connecticut. And um, that was because we were not allowed to join the Protestant church in that town because black people were not allowed to be in that particular church. Although that was the story I was told. Most recently, I've been back to that church. And, you know, sometimes you meet people from a place and they let you know they don't want you there. It doesn't mean it's the rule of the organization. It just means it's that irritable person who lets you know you're not welcome. Mm -hmm. So I grew up thinking that church wouldn't allow me there. And it's a pretty elite church now, but I've had a chance to go back and preach there and build friendships there. And... You know, it's been a healing kind of experience. So I was raised Roman Catholic. When my parents got divorced when I was 12, um, we stopped going to church. But I had my own epiphany experiences with God where I saw Jesus walk in my bedroom when I was a little kid. So I had experiences talking to God for myself, knowing that I shouldn't tell the other grown people around me because I got the sense we weren't supposed to talk to God for ourselves. We're supposed to talk to Father Sullivan. <laughs> but not talk to God. But I was having my own God experiences. I remember having God experiences in the crib. And even then I knew, don't tell the other people, don't tell the grownups that you're talking to God. So I had that kind of deep rooted faith in myself. Um, but then when my parents divorced, um, we like many other Catholics would say we were Catholic, not going to anybody's Catholic church and I was claiming I was Catholic, but not practicing. And then I guess eventually I realized, oh, I'm not in anybody's church. And so I came to find a church that worked for me. And that's when I ended up at First Baptist. And that's when I was like 25 going on 26. Um, and the way I got to church was being a networker. One of my friends said, you got to come to my church because everybody who's anybody comes there. And there's a lot of cute guys there. <laughs> so that's why I went to First Baptist, because I wanted to meet guys at network. Not because I wanted to meet Jesus. <laughs> and so I would go, the first couple of times I went, I felt something different than I thought. And it was really the music that did something that I was like, this is really good. This makes me feel something. And that's what drew me in. So... I gave my life to Christ at about 25 and um, started going to Bible study and Sunday school and like growing in faith. And that's what started to pull me out of the pit of depression. And I started to feel hopeful. And it was around that time that I went from working at Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance. I think my salary at the time was like 25000 And then I got the job with the state of Connecticut and my salary became... Um, 47,000. I didn't even know you could go from 25 to 47, but I did. And so that's when I made the leap to a different kind of profession. 
And that was around the same time. Hmm. Did you feel like there was kind of a shift in a lot of ways? Absolutely. It seems like when I came to faith, click, the lights came on. I was starting to like wake up, not be as depressed. I was starting to feel hopeful. I was making different friends and people to hang out with by having a system of faith, understanding the word of God, going to worship regularly. It did help me start to self-regulate. So I stopped drinking as much, stopped doing the disco drive-by, getting busy with the stranger stuff, you know, stopped getting high, started to have clarity of mind, and it's like the clouds started to pull back. But, you know, the sex, the drugs, the alcohol was all me self-medicating from the pain that I had before. And so faith ended up being my new method of self-medicating. Faith was my self-medication. And it helped me, you know, sweep away the pain and be able to survive without so much pain. Now, soon after I joined the church and gave my life to Christ and came active in faith, like right after I was baptized, this is like 25 moving into 26. And that's around that same period, like right at the end of 25 going into 26, because it was right around September when I got the new job. My birthday is at the end of September. So 25, moving right into 26, is when my younger sister commits suicide. And so she was a full-time student at Harvard on scholarship, a genius, and she commits suicide. And here I am in church, trying to be a professional, keep it together, parents unavailable, And my sister's suicide was once again, something that could have completely taken me out. And um, later on, I found out from reading my sister's diaries that she was a lesbian and struggling because then you didn't come out. You didn't come out in the 80s easily. Although um, for me, I had a lot of gay friends around me. So, the guy that I had been dating when I was a teenager, he came out when I was like 18, mm-hmm. that he's gay. And then my best friend in high school, the high, the summer between high school and college, my best friend, everybody used to always say he was gay. They would call him fag and everything else. He came out. <laughs> and then this guy that I had a mad crush on, he used to wear Calvin Klein jeans and he was in hairdressing school. And I just loved him. His name was Randy. That same summer, he came out. And that was a turning point for me, having been raised Roman Catholic. But here are some of the closest people in my life that I love. And so I had to make a decision for myself around 18. Do I keep my friends? Or do I keep this idea of what religion is supposed to be? I kept my friends. So I always had a crew then of gay guys that were always around me. But, and I even at one point lived in a house full of gay men. And I would say I was the real queen of the house. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, gay men, gay people, I was in the clubs. I was in the the disco clubs with my gay friends. So it was no big deal. And I didn't know my younger sister was silently struggling with being a lesbian. So I didn't find out until after she killed herself that that's what was going on. And so I think for me, and that's all around that 25, 26 time period, It was two weeks, she killed herself two weeks before I got the new job working for the state of Connecticut. So I'm going into this high level position, two weeks into the grief of my younger sister killing herself. Um, But without a doubt for me, and you know, soon into my faith journey, all that at the same time. Um, But very clearly for me, I dare anybody to objectify or push away anyone who happens to be gay, lesbian, bi, trans, whatever. How dare anybody try that around me? That's not happening. So, you know, for my sister to feel she had to kill herself then is because of the cruelty of society. So Mm -hmm. I will ball up my fist and I will fight that no one should have to feel that way in society. So that was sort of my turning point time period. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, between 25... 26. (laughs) (laughs) 
And was your faith community kind of uh, had those ideals as well? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, they didn't know she was struggling with being gay, but the faith community I was a part of, and once again, it wasn't necessarily the pastor, but people that are in the pews or people studying to be ministers there in the church. I remember one woman saying, oh, I heard your sister died. Too bad she's in hell because she killed herself. Hmm. You're studying to be a minister and that's what you're going to yeah. say to somebody. Mm -hmm. And there are some people with antiquated views around suicide that mm -hmm. if a person kills themselves, they go to hell forever. And once again, anybody who thinks that, that's not who I know as God. And if a person decides to self-annihilate and kill themselves, it is because they're in so much pain that they feel living is too hard. And in many ways, they're ill. They are sick. So God's not going to punish you for being sick and killing yourself. So once again, that's another one of my fights if somebody wants to talk about suicide and people not making it to heaven. What? Uh, what kept you up at night? Well, so around 25, what would keep me up at night would be things like, is he going to call? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where am I going to get the money to pay the electric bill so my lights will stay on? I have a, acne on my face. Can I go out this weekend? You know, that that's the kind of stuff that was crisis to me. Mm -hmm. Even though I had was slogging through this other stuff, I can't say that necessarily kept me up at night. It was just what life was. It was the other crises. Will he call? I slept with him after I just met him. Will he call me back again? Right. Yeah, that and, kind of stuff. Yeah. And what uh, what got you up in the morning? Got to keep going. I just got to keep going. I got uh, one foot in front of the other. I have nobody else to rescue me. I have nobody else to pay my bills. I got to show up at work and keep a job so I can have a place to live. I don't have anybody else I can rely on. So getting up in the morning was like, I got to show up at work. I got to do this job. I got to keep my job. I've got to do a good job because I don't have anybody else to rescue me. And were you thinking about the future at all? Not really. I was surviving. <laughs> Future? I mean, and it's amazing. Here I am, 57. <laughs> Life does come at you fast. At 25, I couldn't have even begun to imagine what my future would be because I was just trying to make it through the crisis, the time. And I mean, that's the difference. Um, to be 25, I'm also dealing with my hormones. Hormones are real, and hormones put a filter on everything you're feeling every single day. And I was somebody that had terrible cycles, so it was like high stress, ah! lots of pain. And so to survive month to month, whoo. Yeah. So the future, I just wanted to get through the month, mm -hmm. get through you know this month's period. Right. <laughs> You know, pay my bills, future. Like I did a lot of things that were work. Like I started going to grad school probably by the time I was like 26, 27, one class at a time. At the seminary? Yeah, Hartford Seminary. It took me 10 years to do that master's degree because I was paying class okay. by class. I was going to school, but I didn't really have a clear idea of who I would be when I finished because my first master's degree I didn't even know I was going into ministry. I just was curious about faith and I wanted to learn some things. So it wasn't like I had in my mind this new identity I would get by getting a master's degree from Harvard Seminary. I didn't actually have this idea that I would be a minister. I just thought I was taking classes. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until like 10 years later when I finished that degree that I sort of realized, oh, I'm a minister. And then there was something in me that I wanted to be a professional minister. And even though I had earned one master's, I thought, well, if I go to Yale, I'll be good. So then I applied to Yale Divinity School and got a second master's. Mm -hmm. And so after getting the second master's, 
I'm still serving poor people. You don't get a promotion. <laughs> and it's not like the Yale, <clears throat> the Yale degree gave me opportunity and open doors. But it's not like that master's degree put me in position for promotion and riches <laughs> because my commitment's always been to poor people. So I'm just <laughs> the better. The salary doesn't change. The salary doesn't change. <laughs> I'm just a person serving poor people with two master's degrees. So. Mm -hmm. So what propelled your decision to end up uh, starting taking classes for uh, master's at the seminary? Um, well, one of my mentors was a very she-she, bougie woman who used to have all these different receptions around town. So she would have receptions for different VIP people. And so Hartford Seminary had just hired um, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Hoyt, who was a New Testament professor, African-American. So my mentor, Barbara DeBaptiste, was going to have a reception for him. So she was such a she-she woman. She would just go places with her bag full of cheese and crackers, throw them on a tray, have a couple of bottles of wine, and now it's a reception. <laughs> and so she'd invite all these people in to get to meet these VIPs. So I went to one of these networking receptions at 25, just trying to figure out like how to be this grown-up professional, how to carry my purse on my wrist, you know? And so I went to the reception, and I realized, oh, it's kind of nice in this white building. I didn't, I'd never really heard of seminary before. And having been a lapsed Catholic, I was just starting to come into faith at the Baptist church, but I didn't know about seminary. And, but I just liked the seminary. I liked the vibe and I liked Dr. Hoyt. So I thought I was going to Hartford Seminary to go to a reception, but then I was like, this is kind of cool. I think I'd like to know more. So because Barbara had opened the door for me to be inside the building, I had the courage to call back the next week mm -hmm. and meet with someone about taking classes. Mm -hmm. So I just started taking classes not knowing that it was to become a minister. I didn't realize it until I was like halfway through the program. <laughs> oh, I could be a minister. <laughs> I thought I was going to be helping somebody else. Yeah. Were you thinking about death at all? Oh, a lot of people died around me. Right. So thinking about death, a lot of people were dying around right. me. Um, and so it was around, ooh, I didn't realize how bad 25 was. So it was- <laughs> I a, get that a lot. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize how much was going on. Um, and I have to look it up. I'm thinking, I'm wondering when was the Challenger crash? When the the Challenger it was in the eighties. Eighty. Yeah. Late eighties. Oh, okay. January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. So I was twenty five in nineteen eighty seven. So the reason I think about the Challenger crash is because it was around the day of the challenger crashing i remember laying on the couch in one of my you know nasty little apartments and my best friend clayton who was my boyfriend from high school that was gay mm -hmm. called me like around the time of the challenger crash i think it was the same day or they was repeating on the news <clears throat> so that's 1986 and clayton told me then that he had the virus mm -hmm. that he had aids and when I was 24, 25, 26, because I had so many gay male friends, all during that time period, a lot of my friends were dying. A lot of the people we knew from the clubs, because we were all going to the different discos and stuff, were dying. You see them today, or you now you see them with these things on their face, you know that they've got the marks and, you know. And when people had AIDS then, there was no cushion of time you just knew your friend's gonna die mm -hmm. and it was around that time period uh, maybe a little later that I found out my cousin had AIDS he was a gospel singer and a performer and um, he had AIDS he ended up dying maybe four or five years later mm -hmm. and that was the first funeral I did as a minister so thinking about death not thinking about it there's just a lot of people dying 
a lot of people were dying. Mm-hmm. And that was just, you know, what we were living with at the time, what I was living with between my parents, both sets of grandparents had died, the virus is there, we've got friends dying. And like when my friend Clayton died, which was maybe probably when I was about 26, once again, going into that period, um, he died from AIDS and his parents who never accepted the fact that he was gay. Um, when he died, they had the funeral and didn't let any of us go. They didn't invite any of us um, because they didn't want to accept that he was gay. So that was really devastating to our community because we, 25-year-olds, were family, and yet these so-called grown-ups or old folks or parents were making decisions affecting our family that we had no control over. Mm. And that was the case for a lot of our friends that were dying too because a lot of their parents couldn't accept them being gay at that time. What do you think of 25-year-olds today? That's an interesting question. I am, um, I'm finding it a blessing to get to know 25-year-olds now. I'm finding the spirituality of 25-year-olds to be intriguing. And because of the spiritual path I've been on, which is not exactly traditional, I like to hear about the spiritual journey people are on. And so the 25-year-olds I meet usually are seekers. Um, so, and when I say seekers, they're either my yoga friends that are 25, <laughs> uh, my people that are like in recovery, my artsy 25-year-old friends, and then I meet some 25-year-old Christians that are trying to be in the church, and then I meet my 25-year-old non-churchy shaman types <laughs> <laughs> who have their own a little young to be a shaman <laughs> but they there's the new generation of healers that are showing up they're deeply yeah. spiritual and they may not fit the traditional role so like when i was in jamaica a couple weeks ago i met these young women one's name was goddess and her friend's name was nia and they were some of the most fascinating, hyper young women I've ever met. We were staying in a metaphysical healing space in the grill. And Goddess and Nia are like, they are servers in restaurants and they put their money together and they travel places all over the world with like their knapsacks and their unique spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I felt a love for them and concern for them because they're kind of dangerous too. When I say dangerous, it's like I'm concerned for their well-being because they're taking all these risks. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's when you start to feel like a little mother towards people. It's like, you know, and there's, and you know, in Jamaica, everybody's getting high to doing edibles and everything else. And so these two young sisters were, you know, looking for different stuff and doing edibles and edibles are pretty strong. So, and in Jamaica, you doing edibles? (laughs) So these little 25-year-old balls of fire that were very spiritual were concerning to me as far as what was going to happen to them about them being safe and you know staying alive, making wise decisions. Both young women had experienced sexual trauma in their lives at 25, mm-hmm. had already had abortions that they haven't healed from at 25. And you know, they were exploring spirituality and they were going to leave that place in the grill, go into Kingston riding the bus. And then after that, they were going to go to the Cayman Islands. So free spirits, living kind of risky, scared, not seeing where they're at risk. Mm -hmm. But that's probably what I was too. (laughs) You know, but the good thing is I'm glad I met them. I gave them one of my cards. I said to them, I'm one of your lifelines. So you've got my cell phone number. If ever you end up someplace where you need somebody to get you and get you out and find a way to to get to you or get resources to you, remember to call me and I will find a way to get you. And if ever you have to escape someplace and need a safe house to get to, I always have a space in my house for you. Hopefully they call if they need it. Right, right. 
Hopefully they don't need it. <laughs> Hopefully they don't need it. Hopefully they don't need it. So I just, yeah. I keep them in prayer. Yeah. Because at least they have courage to try some stuff, but I'm just, I want them to survive and I don't want them to go through any more trauma and pain. Sure. Of course. Um, all right. So 25-year-old Shelly Best comes in, sits down, takes a look around. What does she say? Wow. Yeah, really cool office. <laughs> so eloquent. You know, she'd probably say something like that. Wow, you got a really cool office. I really like it. What do you do for work? Mm-hmm. Um, so there'd be a curiosity that that Shelly would have for this woman she's meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to volunteer with you because I was always volunteering for stuff. Could, is there anything I could do around here? Mm-hmm. So I would make myself available, yeah. that 25-year-old self. If people would give me the time and space, I'd hang out with them and sort of pick their brain and learn from mm-hmm. them. So I would probably try to endear myself to this grown Shelly and mm-hmm. get to know her and hang out. And, hey, can I put something on my resume that I volunteer yeah. with you? Yeah. <laughs> I need to build my resume. So you were very good at finding mentors. Mm-hmm. What was? Uh, do you have any kind of words of wisdom of how, like how somebody might be able to find their mentor? What I figured out, mentors don't grab you. You have to grab them. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is, I had a lot of enthusiasm. Yes. Can I volunteer and work on a project with you? And so I would just show up. I would just keep showing up. Mm -hmm. And often people would help me because now I can see Shelly would show up on time and do the task that she said she would do, follow through, get it done. Maybe a little rough, but you know, I'm gonna show up and give it my all and be enthusiastic and, you know, to the best of my ability, not have people know that I'm leaking and drowning outside of that situation, but I'm gonna try to show up, be enthusiastic and do my best. Mm -hmm. And because I would show up, that's why people would give me a chance because a lot of, other people that were my peers wouldn't show up. But I would show up. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I got used a lot. <laughs> but I was making myself available to be used, and that's how I got these opportunities. Right. And uh, what would you say back to 25-year-old Chelly? Sure, if you want to hang out, come on in. Yeah. You know you know where I am. You can come any day you want. You can hang out. As a matter of fact, here at the 224, I've got a lot of people <laughs> hanging out here. You can volunteer. You can put it on your resume. If you want to have programs, I'll help you. If you want to develop your brand and your platform, I'll help you do that. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? So let's have tea. <laughs> so that's what I would say to her, and yeah. I would be available, and that's what happens here now. Yeah. I have different people that come in and talk about life, and you know, we'll see if they show up for themselves. And if they keep showing up for themselves, I'll keep giving them help. Mm-hmm. Kind of passing that along. Mm-hmm. Seems like that's been a big thread in your life. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of music were you listening to at 25? I have a pretty eclectic um, taste in music. So at 25, I was probably coming through my rock stage um, so I was very much into like Southern rock, Bob Seger, Leonard Skinner, mm-hmm. Neil Young, you know, and then going into more psychedelic rock, Pink Floyd, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I was starting to shift into disco, which was kind of disconcerting to my rock friends. <laughs> so then like do the hustle. It's a backslide. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. They're like, don't bring that around here. Donna <laughs> Summer, um... You know, the the disco hits, Casey and the Sunshine Band, because I was going out to discos all the time, and um, including Studio 54 and being in New York and doing that. So I was sort of the hybrid of rock going into disco. Mm -hmm. And then, like, probably 1987, I'd have to look up. I'd be curious to know what were, like, the hit songs. Some pop. I would do some pop, too. And then I was just probably just starting to get into gospel music. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite hymn? Hmm. Interesting. I don't know if it's a hymn. It's a more sort of contemporary song. 
Um, we just came to praise the Lord. It was like the opening song of First Cathedral. And so people would sing that song. We just came to praise the Lord. We just came to praise the Lord. We just came to praise his holy name. We just came to praise the Lord. And they just and they yeah. get this whole different parts, you know, yeah. the breaking out parts and whatnot. It'd be really pretty cool. Yeah. So, Reverend Dr. Shelley Best, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 25 for 25. Our theme music was written and performed by Tom McCauley and Brandon Stradling with help from Little Machine. Our logo was designed by Woozy Kurtz. I'm your host, Panina Beattie.